Hey there, it's Carolyn. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to tell you about a brand new challenge that we have starting over in the Homestead Kitchen membership really soon. This one is all about making your very own herbal oils and culinary oils and cosmetic oils and turning them into salves and balms for your herbal medicine cabinet. If you're interested in joining me for the Herbal Oils and Salves Challenge, then go to homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Again, that's homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Hey, you guys, this is Josh with Homesteading Family, and welcome to this week's episode of the Pantry Chat Food for Thought. This week, I am honored to have Brandon Shear, the Farmstead Meatsmith, hanging out with us today. And uh, we've been here in Oklahoma at Brandon's place, uh, filming all week a class for the School of Traditional Skills. And uh, Brandon obliged me to come on to the Pantry Chat today. Uh, so that you guys could get to know him a little bit. And we could talk a little bit about curing meat, something that's near and dear to your heart. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, but before we do that, we always get into a little bit of chit-chat and what's going on. And so, Brandon, what is up with you outside of like this week? And yeah, we've been working and filming. And, and uh, so on your farm here, what's what's going on with you and your family lately? Yeah, well, the big thing is the learning curve. We are We are learning our land. We just relocated to a new state, so I'm trying to learn all the understory species, the names of the trees, of the grasses, of the kind of pastures out Mm. of the soil. So that's actually very enjoyable. Uh, But we're bringing on livestock because we're in spring. That's right. And the thing about this region is that the grass grows at the speed of light. Like, you can just watch it with the naked eye. It's incredible. So... I'm trying to get some grazers on the ground and manage the pasture. So we just got a whole bunch of goslings recently. Awesome. Goslings. Yes. Yeah. I think I have 16 out there. Ooh, all right. Yeah. So it's going to be loud, but they are they're excellent grazers. So I think they're going to help us mow, you know? So with, so with um, like beef and sheep, you can generally, and on a beef, like a beef cow is the standard for measuring like how much an animal consumes. Yes. And then you can rate sheep against them and, Right? We're not raising a bunch of goslings, but we have Canadian geese, like uh, 20 or 30 of them. And I've got some new pasture I'm trying to get going. And I'm watching them eat my grass. And maybe you have an answer for this since you're going to actually graze that many. Yeah. I'm watching them going, like, how many geese does it take to equal one cow in one yeah. cow day out on the pasture? Yeah. Have you have you thought, like, what those those that batch of geese is yeah. going to do and how much grass it's going to consume? And I, I haven't calculated it, yeah. but the remarkable thing about them is that they do graze, and it's almost strange to see a bird graze with a bill because yeah. it seems very inefficient. But they literally do – they like nothing more than to do that all yep. day. Really? And they're just sleeping. 85% yeah. of their diet. Oh, my grass. goodness. It's remarkable. And they're very easy on the pasture. Like there is no scratching like chickens do. There's no you yeah. know, massive – damage to muddy areas like mm-hmm. a cow might do mm-hmm. or ducks will do that too that they'll they'll drill their beaks and just spread mud but geese are actually they're very gentle mm-hmm. and they just all they want to do is eat grass that's that's their superpower wow. and they're fertilizing at the same time yes but you don't have a big pile to step into yeah. so that's kind of nice for yeah. small holding yes so are you gonna you're gonna like you have a method are you gonna move them like rotate them in netting is that is that the plan or a little more yeah. free 
because they're geese and they're smaller, you're going to do a little more like just kind of free range them with multi-species or something. Yeah, I think for this first run this year, it's it's going to be more free ranging. Um, they do have a very strong herding instinct, which mm. is kind of nice, which means they stay as a flock. Okay. And ducks are very similar. Mm-hmm. And they tend to stay relatively close to home base, um, especially larger breed geese, which is what these are. They're Emden's, so they're not, they can't fly. Okay. They, they're going to be anchored to the ground, which makes them very easy to contain, even okay. with pretty short fencing. Um, and I think that we're just going to let their their flock behavior kind of guide where they go okay. for the first year and just see how it goes. Yeah. You know, and uh, I imagine we'll we'll introduce some slightly more permanent fencing within the larger paddocks we have to, to better manage them. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got another topic we're going to talk about curing meat today, but I'm curious because we love geese. We have just one breeding pair. We raise a few every year and we harvest them and, and love cooking them at special feasts. You're doing it at a much larger scale, so it makes me think about the actual butchering. Yeah. Because geese are kind of tough. Yes. So, like, how are you cracking that nut, so to speak? Yeah. Because that's going to be a lot to process at once. Have you got a method that um, is, you know, efficient and works well? Yeah. Yeah, I find that with geese, because you you harvest them when they're so mature, you know, six months old or so, they're fully fleshed. And so you're less likely to hit them at that horrible spot when they're... When they're right about to molt, and so they're growing new feathers, which is when you get the pink mm. feathers. That's more of a common thing that's hard to avoid with ducks. And so far, with the many, many geese that I've slaughtered just through my work, I've been able to avoid that pin feather stage. Okay. That, that's just a big part. So that's the big deal right there. Yeah. Like the defeathering yeah. jaw much easier. Yes. And so, <laughs> excuse me. And one way to do that is to note if you see feathers all over your farmyard, don't slaughter the geese yet. Okay. <laughs> that means they're blowing their feathers mm-hmm. and they're going to, they're going to put on new ones. And you just want to be sure before you slaughter them, that they're fully fledged, that they've got full, nice, long, beautiful, okay. mature flight feathers. Yeah. And that'll be your best bet at avoiding that, that pin feather stage. Awesome. Um, and I, I like to keep it simple. I, I divide the slaughter into two days with geese because the primary yield for me from a goose is its fat. Yeah. And so much of that fat is wound up in its viscera. It's, it's along oh, its man. small intestines. Yeah. And so what I do is I do the kill, the scalding, the plucking on day one. Okay. And then I chill them all okay. in my walk-in or just in you know, a cool spot in the mm-hmm. barn. I'll hang them so there's airflow. Okay. And they'll get chilled all the way through with their guts in and everything. And then the next day, I do the evisceration. Okay. And I actually pull the guts out. By that point... The fat is chilled and it's solid. It's a lot easier to work with. And it's way easier to work with. It's cleaner. It's not the big messy hose job, you know, spraying water everywhere that eviscerating is on the kill day. It's it's actually a cleaner job. You can do it inside, you know. It's kind of nice. So that's how I divide that that job up. Wow. Very cool. And the thing I like about geese and why I think it's worth talking about a little bit more here is because for small holdings and people that have smaller areas, I mean... That there's a grazing animal that you could be putting to use yeah. that's not too hard to manage and it's got some productivity for you and use up some of that grass if you're not ready for, uh, you know, larger animals. Definitely. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, um, we're going to dive right in. We're talking about curing meat today. And Brandon is just the guy to talk to when it comes to curing meat, particularly pork, which is what we're talking about right now. And, um, you know, I know pigs are an integral part of your farm mm-hmm. and we're just starting out. Um, we've been raising pigs seasonally for many, many, many 
years. Yeah. But we're just actually going to farrowing Excellent. and starting our own programs that are going to become much more of an integral part of our farm. And the goal is to get that to the stage so that we can enjoy the fruit of those labors and also be learning how to cure and store me other ways besides just the freezer. Yeah. Right. And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. And uh, maybe, maybe you want to just start off talking a little bit about the, the, a few of the different ways of curing or, you know, maybe not even curing, just freezer would be one method. Yeah. And how you kind of arrived where you're at doing what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. For us, it was really, um, discovering the simplicity of the process of curing using traditional methods that don't necessitate the use of a freezer. Mm -hmm. It's so easy. And then you pair that with the fact that it is so unarguably delicious that (laughs) it's like how you can't go back. Yeah. Once, once you see the ease of it and the flavors, it's just, it's too good. It's almost too good to be true, except it's true. (laughs) Well, and one of the, one of the challenges is, is that it is so easy that it's almost hard to believe. Yeah. Right. And we, we learned to cure bacon from you years ago from, from some of your early videos. And I remember, you know, having those pork bellies in the refrigerator yeah. to get that started and then getting them hung and looking at them and going, really? Is this like, I can do this? Is, is this yeah. okay? Is it, was that easy? And is it really that safe? Yeah. You know, do you, do you hear that a lot? Do you, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I find in the classes that I teach, there's almost this anticlimactic feeling when we get to the curing because, you know, it's basically like, here's fresh, healthy pork. Here's some salt. Put the salt on the pork. Rinse it off and hang it. And you're done. That yeah. is the process. And uh, so the thing that is difficult to learn in curing meat is not the memorizing of complex recipes or extravagant, you know, methods or measurements or complex apparatus. It's just to believe that it is as simple as it is because none of the meat that is produced today or that we purchase in a grocery store is even remotely like what you might cure at home. It is unnecessarily complex. And for good reason, it's dirty, it's transported thousands of miles. It's handled in thousands of environments. So yes, that meat is not going to cure as simply as your good homegrown meat or locally sourced pork. So it's just, uh, it's it's so simple, and it, it does help to have that refrigerator just for that salting stage, too. Well, and I think and it's one of the neat things about the time that we're in is we can take advantage of some of the old skills and, yeah. and bring some of those back and learn some of those that are real benefit, but still using the technology that we have to make that dual. Yeah. You know, and this is one of those places where we're all trying to do so much, people are trying to work, and yet we want to pick up these skills and incorporate them into our lives. Yeah. And so the refrigerator is a nice place in your method and what you do that allows us to do this traditional skill, so to speak, in a modern context. Yeah. And it makes it doable, makes it achievable. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it, it just helps our confidence. Yeah. Bit. Yeah, it is. It, it gives you a cool place without insects. Yeah. So basically what it is, it's what your ancestors would have used winter for, which is winter is the time you kill the pig. Yeah. That's when you put all the meat on the salt. Now, you can use a refrigerator to be your out-of-season winter time for the curing of your pork. Right. And that just that, that does make it a lot easier. So, you know, so we're talking salt curing, which is very, very simple. Um, can you give us just a basic overlay of what that looks like? I mean, I know we've got different cuts. Yeah. Now, maybe we want to just take bacon. We all, yeah. we all love bacon if we've got pork. And just a quick walk through, you know, what does it take? How long does it take to get, you know, a side of bacon going? Yeah. So if you, if you can start with, 
a healthy pig with the skin on the belly, mm -hmm. you are, you're like 90% there. Like you've done the hard work. If, if it's mm -hmm. healthy, you know, it's, it's eaten well and it's been killed well. It's been harvested well. Yeah. It's so important. Then you have clean meat. You're starting with clean meat. You're not starting with dirty meat that you have to salt excessively just to prevent it from spoilage. The clean meat, like all you need to do is remove some water. So, so that's the process. When you say dirty meat, let's back up a little bit because yeah. you're not, I don't think you're talking just about like meat that got some dirt or dust on it. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of that. Little I mean, that. You're just you know, talking just good, just good harvesting procedure. Yeah. Besides raising the animal and feeding them clean meat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from, from that, all of your feed source all the way through to just yeah. getting it, you know, to the table where you're prepping it here. Yeah. Yeah. And everything's just clean. You yeah. It's a good point. The The main thing is definitely the quality of the feed. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. Uh, and that definitely gives you a cleaner pig, literally less toxins in its flesh. If it's not in the pig's diet, yeah. it's just not going to have it. And, and that makes it again, easier to cure. But then even like, you know, supermarket pork is handled so many times and distributed over thousands of miles before mm -hmm. it gets to you. So I do think it is literally more dirty. Yeah. And the way that they tend to transport it is wrapped in plastic. So not only is there more bacteria introduced to the surface of the meat, but then they put it in something that's anaerobic in plastic. Which is hard in our modern world. We think that's like protecting it. Right. Right. And maybe in that context it is because it is changing yeah. hands so much yes. that it, that it may, it probably, that plastic probably is protecting it. Yeah. But, but it's also damaging it. Yeah. Uh, as far as keeping that meat clean and pure. Exactly. Yeah. Cause yeah. what, what does that anaerobic environment do? Yeah. That creates the, the possible conditions for botulism for the creation of that Clostridium botulinum bacteria mm -hmm. to proliferate and release that spore in an anaerobic environment. Now it's, you know, very puritanically kept in very low temperatures the whole time it's mm -hmm. transported. But even then, when you get that meat, or even like when a butcher gets it at a grocery store and you open up that bag, the meat is slimy. It has a surface slime growing on it. I remember that opening packs of bacon when I was a kid. Yeah. Never thought of it much then. Yeah. Now, and that's what comes to mind when you say that. So I remember those packages that would make ham sandwiches as a kid. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. That is bacteria. Yeah. That is bacteria colonizing the surface. Hmm. And I have the luxury of, you know, raising my own pigs and, and butchering them. You'll notice, you know, even the pork we worked with this week, it's dry. The skin yeah. is dry. Yeah. It's not leaving puddles of water or slime on the table as we work with it. And that's just because hmm. it's cleaner. Yeah. Wow. Um, so let's talk about that commercial pork for a minute and curing because is, is that, is, is that really cured what we're getting? Yeah. At what they're calling him, what we're getting at the store, is it really cured? No, it's it's been flavored. So when they cure bacon or ham today and they sell it at the grocery store, one of the things actually that they have to prove before they can be licensed to sell it is that it is not cured for preservation, but only for flavoring. And that's just the way they so, so we're getting ripped off a bit even. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. really getting sold something that isn't what it is. Yeah, it's not cured. You know, if you were to take out, even if you bought slab bacon at the grocery store and unwrapped it and tried to hang it in your kitchen, it would probably go off because most of the bacon is cooked. It's pre-cooked hmm. when you get it. And in, in the smoking process, they cook it. And even before that, you know, it takes the factory just like a day or two to cure bacon, to make bacon. And that's because they're using 
nitrite or synthetic cure ingredients that actually pass through the meat faster than salt does. Salt actually takes a while to equalize throughout the meat. Whereas these synthetic ingredients, they pass through within hours and they do it in refrigeration temperatures. Yeah. And that's what is so appealing to the industrial production of meat. One of the things that's amazing to me about this is you can go and buy this, you know, this meat from the store that's supposedly been taken care of in this industrial method and it's safe and it's good and it's clean and, and you, you leave it out and it's going to go back. Yeah. You can take what you do and what we do and many of us are doing with curing the salt and take your raw meat. Yeah. Cure it with salt and leave it out. And it goes good, as That's you've said right. many times this week. I love that phrase. Yeah. It really goes good. So so tell us a little bit about then curing with salt and just some of the basics of it and, and you yeah. know what's happening there. Why is that? Why is it so simple and what's happening that's making that work when you're just taking a good cut of, of, of meat, say pork belly and salt? Yeah. How does that come together and, and make this product that doesn't go bad, but goes good? Yeah. And really the simplicity comes from the fact that the, the function of the salt that is curing the meat is simple. It's just removing and uh, binding water. That's all it is. It's not any more complex than that. It's not a ferment. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to nurture beneficial bacteria so it outcompetes the bad stuff mm-hmm. and produces acid and lowers the pH. That's a more complex thing. That's salami. Yeah. which is wonderful, mm-hmm. but that is a little more sensitive as far as like the aging climate in which it's hanging. Whereas bacon, prosciutto, whole muscle cures that aren't ground, but just yeah. a slab of meat, you just need to dry those out with the aid of salt. And that's all it's doing. Because if that meat is going to spoil, it's going to be because of free water. So just puddled available water. That is where bacteria can get in and proliferate. So, so the curing of meat is really just the removal of the water. That's yes. all we're doing. We're just using the salt yeah. to remove the water and yeah. that preserves it to where you can leave it up there. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute for indefinitely more yeah. or less. Yeah. The, uh, the product changes. So, um, very cool. So how, how long, well, let's talk about how long it takes to cure, you know, bacon. How long does yeah. it take you to get from, from start? You got your pork belly and you got some salt. How long does it take to get a usable yeah. product? Maybe talk about, let's talk about bacon and then prosciutto, which is ham, which I just learned. Yeah. Prosciutto. Prosciutto. Prosciutto, sorry. Yeah. Is, is really just ham. Yeah. In Italian. In Italian form. Yeah. yeah. So how long does it take to get bacon? So I'm going to say five days because that, that's, that's one way to do it. But honestly, um, you could do it in three days or two weeks. Like yeah. this is the funny thing that it's, it's so flexible and simple that a lot of these times they're not hard and fast recipes. The, the recipe or the method that I follow, it's five days more just out of simplicity. You know, it's, it's something that I can manage mm-hmm. in the middle of a, you know, busy family life and an active farm and running a business and everything. But really, if you were to put a couple handfuls of salt, on a pork belly and put it in your fridge for about three days and then take it out and rinse it off and dry it and hang it, that would cure. That yeah. would cure the belly. When you say dry, you're literally just patting it dry. Patting it you're dry. Not, you're not doing anything special. You're not setting no. it in the sun, dehydrator. You're just patting it dry, dry. with towels yeah. after you've rinsed off any salt that remains. So so in its barest, simplest form, like that that will work. And then the really the only subtlety or the craft or, or the refinements that you might make to that process, those come in when you're trying not to oversalt okay. and you're trying to remove just enough water with the salt to allow the bacon to go good, but no more. 
You're salting it just, just to the minimum, just, just to what's necessary. Because if you, if you do that, then the bacon or anything that you hang will ripen and actually get better and develop more complex flavors with time. That's going good. Yeah, that's going good. You know, what's, what's really interesting is when you do this for the first time, most people are worried about going bad, right? Yes. And what's, what's amazing is really the only way you can do this wrong is to over salt it. Yes. Right? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the most common mistake. In yeah. fact, I have to say, after teaching uh, thousands of students, you know, hundreds of classes, okay. I've never gotten a report of a spoiled belly. Yeah, I've never lost a belly to spoilage. I've cured hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of pounds of bellies. What I have done and what others have done is oversalt the belly, yeah. which uh, is not a bad thing. That's not the end of the world. That just means you have a belly that tastes a little more salty. And so you're going you're gonna to use it different, exactly. right? Exactly. something different. And you can even maybe talk about that for a second. Yeah. You can um, reduce that. You can extract some of the salt. Yeah. 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 It's not a bad idea if you have a belly that's just too salty to the taste. You can cut off a chunk that you want to eat and just soak it in water. Yeah. And if you give it like an hour of soak, it's going to pull salt out. Then you can slice and fry that up for breakfast and just hang what remains back up. So how long can you um, store and say eat off a slab of bacon? Until the end of the world or, or you eat it. That's my conservation right there. Yeah. It, it really never goes bad. Um, and I should say, you know, it will develop over time. So when it just comes off the salt, it's going to be very tender. It's still mm-hmm. going to have some moisture to it, which is nice. Um, and that is kind of the ideal texture for breakfast meat. That's yeah. how we usually think of it. You slice it and you fry it up for breakfast. Right. But then the longer it hangs, it gets, it gets more dense. And when it's, when it's really dense and really dry, it's actually more pleasurable and enjoyable just to slice it real thin and eat it raw, maybe with some pickled vegetables. Because it'll be rich and fatty and delicious. So it's, it's very flexible that way. So now how about prosciutto? And let's talk about that because that's the bacon. Usually you're not, you're rarely going to hang it as long as you can. Right. Because you're going to consume it. Yes. And, but you can put up a lot of bacon, hang it, and you've got a very simple, low technology stored meat. Yeah. Which is really cool. But a prosciutto is something that can be stored, you know, longer term. Yeah. And actually, you don't even want to use it until longer term. So tell us a little bit about prosciutto. Yeah. Yeah. Prosciutto is the back leg of a pig. And every country in Europe has their version of it. It's the back leg of a pig that's been cured. And it, you want it to hang for a long time because that's how it, it ripens. It develops particular flavors. So in general, and again, you'll find exceptions all over the board because there are more ways to do this than not to do it. But in general, two years is about the minimum hanging time for a prosciutto, which is why this is such a thrifty way to consume mm-hmm. pork, because it'll take a little bit to go through the bacon. And by the time you've gone out of that, hey, your blanchelle is ready to go, you know, and that's the jowl. And oh. you would cure that right with the bacon. And then by the time same you get through that, salt cure, salt cure. Okay. I mean, in the same tub, yeah. cure it the exact same way. Okay. And then maybe you've got the culpas, the shoulders, and then those are ready to go and you get through those. And then, you know, you can get to even the two-year mark, and now it's time to cut into the prosciutto. So it's, it's literally the most thrifty and extravagant way to consume pork. That's, what, that's one of the things I think is really neat that I learned this week, and I just really know that about prosciutto and, and how you can take this whole leg and cure it. We think of this as this fancy meat. Yeah. 
And I mean, it is, it comes out, it's extravagant. It's the, the taste is so rich and beautiful. You don't need to eat a whole lot of it, but talk about a simple, quick way to preserve a lot of meat. Yeah. You know, in a leg like that, that just, the, to me, that's just beautiful. Yeah. And so what you're describing is you can pretty much cure just about a whole animal with this simple traditional method. Yeah. And that's what they used to do. You can even find in Britain, you know, up in the highlands where there are stone homes and over, you know, the, the beam over the door, it's all stone. It's completely stone. And engraved over the door is, you know, 1623, the date of the building. Okay. Structure. Yeah. And you'll go in through this, you know, it's those buildings with the stone shingles mm-hmm. as the roof. Well, it's incredible. Sleep, yeah. Yeah. yeah sleep. And you'll find in one particular room, a trough with drains gouged out on the side. Okay. And that is literally built into the structure of the building. That's the baking carrying trough. Wow. And it's the size of a pig. Okay. So, so there's drains for the moisture. So that's you right. put your salt down yes. in there, but you put like, so you could put a, was that made to put a whole pig in? It's made to put a whole pig. Wow. Cut in half, you know, so by yeah. side, they would yeah. still do one side at a time. Yeah. Wow. It's, it is, it's amazing to me just how simple some of these things are and kind of how deep we almost are in, in trusting our technology, trusting our science is the word today, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, you buy, Store-bought meat, it's going to go bad on you if you leave it out. And raw milk's the same way. Milk, you buy the store-bought milk, you leave that out and it's dangerous. Yeah. But yeah, you can get milk the way God gave it to you and leave it out. And the flavor's going to change. The yeah. texture's going to change. Right. But it's still usable and even good. And yes. so we can take a whole pig and just a little bit of what God gave us in salt and yeah. take care of that and preserve it. Yeah. And it goes good. It goes, it goes wonderful. It goes better. Yeah. 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 That and we're... I think we're wired to detect if it goes bad too. Well, that, and that's one of the common threads with raw milk, with fermenting vegetables, hearing you talk this week about curing the pork and how to know. We all people, we're all worried about like, is it going to go bad on yeah. How do I know? And I know Carolyn says the same thing you've been saying all week. And we were doing a fermenting class with Lisa Bass about fermentation. She was saying the same thing. God, we know if it's gone back. Yeah. You know, now it's, it may go different. It may be something you're not used to. It may right. be too strong, mm-hmm. you know, or different things like that, that, you know, you, you've got to learn how to enjoy or, or that, that might be challenging, but it doesn't go bad. Right. You know, something that goes bad, you're going to know it. Yes. Right. You were just saying you're, you're, we're made to know that. Yeah. You're not going to be guessing. Yeah. And that actually should, that's a great confidence builder when it comes to curing meat because it means you're not going to accidentally eat something that's going to make you sick when it comes to whole muscle cures. Salami is different. It's, it's theoretically possible there for right. a toxin to, to be released that you can't see or taste or smell. Well, it's a different process. You have different. a lot more surface area, exactly. all, you know, opportunity for moisture and exactly. different things going on. Right? Yeah. But with the whole muscles, like when they go bad, they go obviously bad. Yeah. Nobody doubts that it's, that it's gone. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. So can you, should you cook cured meats, you know, cured pork, just leaving it in that, in that realm right now? Do you need to cook them? Or I guess the, the, the bigger question is, can you eat them raw? Yes. Yeah, you can. And, uh, the way we do it is it's very much a matter of taste. The longer any cured meat you hang, whether it's bacon or prosciutto or guanciale or, or lomo, lonzo, the longer it hangs, the more dry and dense it becomes. And when it's that dry and dense, you know, almost like wood, you know, it can be really hard. It's more pleasant and enjoyable to do thin shavings yeah. and serve it with, you know, with cheese or something and a nice homemade bread. And you just eat it raw that way. 
technically you could eat it raw right out, out right off the salt, right yeah. after you've cured it. If you're starting with a healthy pig and that's fine. It just might be a little chewy, you know, especially with a belly. It's, it's going to be less pleasant than frying it up, which is really when it's good yeah. fresh, just off the salt. That's part of the fun, part of the art of it with the cure too. And what I'm seeing and learning is that, you know, you can find where you enjoy it. Yes. Most. Yeah. You know, or, or learn to enjoy it throughout its different stages. Exactly. We're so monocultural today. We just want one thing to taste this way. Yeah. Instead of like, you can take that bacon or this prosciutto right behind you and learn that it's, it's, you're going to have a different almost relationship with it, you know, on a palate. Yeah. Over seasons, over time. Exactly. And, and that, 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 I don't know, that makes the experience that much more fun. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I got to ask this question, and I mean, we pretty kind of much answered it, but is there a place for nitrates and nitrites and all of this? Yeah. Why and why or why not? Yeah. I find that the only, the only reason I don't use them is because they, they tend to homogenize the product. They tend oh. to lend it a, a pink color and a very prototypical, mildly tangy flavor. Okay. That we all recognize that that's what that is the flavor we have come to associate with cured meat, mm-hmm. such that if when you cure meat with salt in your home and you taste it for the first time, you're going to be a little surprised, like whoa, this is very different yeah, than flavor than what I thought cured meat tastes like. And that's because we're used to the flavor that nitrite gives to cured yeah. meat, which is mildly tangy, um, and you know it's it's not necessarily a carcinogen unless. You, which kind of has a reputation. It, that, that discussion's gotten overblown. And, yeah. And, and Carol and I study. Yeah. You know, we used to think that was a big deal, big yeah. issue. I mean, people have been using, I forget which one comes first. Is it the nitrite? Then they go down the nitrate? Is it the other it's way nitrate around? Nitrate reduces to nitrite. To nitrites. Yeah. But I mean, celery, they use celery, right? Yeah. To, for nitrates. Yeah. To preserve. People have been using these for a long, long time. In a sense, there is a traditional use yes. of them. That's right. And it's in the form of saltpeter. Yeah. And usually it's mined. You know, there, there are mines yeah. in Bolivia. It's, it's veins. You can see them in cave walls and they mine it. Yeah. And that is potassium nitrate, which okay. still has to be nursed into nitrite to even have an effect on the meat at all. Nitrate does nothing to meat. It has to be reduced to nitrite. So it's a more complex process. Yes. For, as far as like for the homesteader, and the person wanting to apply this this just simple curing method, it's not so much that these nitrites and nitrates are bad. Yeah. They can be used. And that, that's a different discussion. And I we'd agree that, you know, that discussion's overblown if we yeah. that. But it's a more complex process. Yeah. Maybe a little harder to attain to where, where salting is just a lot easier to get it's going. It's a lot easier. It's a lot simpler, primarily because potassium nitrate, or if you purchase already isolated nitrite, you have to use them at the very, you know, closely prescribed levels because they are so volatile. If you, the problem with those is you don't want to overuse them. So it's not as forgiving. It's not as forgiving at yeah. all. You've got to follow a very close recipe and you've got to follow it very closely so that you don't over nitrate it because yeah. that is very dangerous. Okay. So supplies needed. What, 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 what does somebody need to get started? Yeah. And I know it's, I'm like a broken record, but if you just start with good pork, like you are 99% of your problems you, that you might encounter, they're solved before you even get the salt down. Yeah. So just healthy pig, locally sourced, ideally, yeah. just to keep it clean. So that's, that's always number one. But then for curing meat at the most basic level, you just need some natural sea salt. So I prefer, you know, you can even use mine salts like Redmond salt will work. 
Um, the mine salts have lots of other minerals in them, which add flavor and they're great, but they, some of them aren't soluble. So they might leave a little mineral dust on and, your you know, And that's what we do. That explains something because that's what we yeah. use. We use a lot of Redmond salt. It's just, we buy in bulk and yeah. have a lot of it for everything. And we have definitely seen yeah. that it wasn't, I remember first seeing it and going, like, it shouldn't be moldy. And it should, definitely shouldn't be moldy already. Yeah. It just had that little dusting on it. Yeah. And so that, that explains that. Yeah. And it's not a problem at yeah. all, you know? Uh, it's a less salty salt, so mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a good hedge against oversalting. It's a good salt to use, um, and just you know natural sea salt. So I avoid I, I avoid kosher salt because mm-hmm. it is a manufactured salt, mm-hmm. and it's it's not a flavorsome salt. It doesn't taste very good. It's it's just solid, you know, so uh, 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 what is it? Uh, sodium, sodium chloride. chloride. It's just that, pretty yeah, pure sodium chloride. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Totally icy. So it's very salty. Yeah. And the flake shape makes it dissolve very quickly. Okay. So it, it is easy to oversalt with kosher okay. salt. So I simple, fine grain uh, sea salt, I think is the way to go. Very cool. Okay. Um, so good pork, salt. Good pork and salt. What, what else do we need to get started? It, it would be good to have curing vessels that are non-reactive. So this is the container that you're going to put the meat and the salt in. And you just basically don't want it to be aluminum. So it could be plastic, it could be wood, it could be porcelain, it could be glass. Um, I prefer to use plastic, honestly, mm-hmm. because I can drain it. I can have a self-draining tub, yeah. which is another way you can help yourself to not oversalt. Because if the meat's sitting in its own liquid that it's pulling out, mm-hmm. um, it's going to get oversalted. Okay. And so if it has holes in the bottom of the tub, and that tub is nested in a solid tub, then it will drain away from the meat. Yeah. Which is which works perfect. And so the bus tubs that you can get, you know, at a restaurant supply, you can yeah. order them online, Amazon. Those things are ideal. Yeah, they fit on a shelf in your fridge. They'll generally hold an average size leg, yes. right, or, or several bellies. Yeah, and you can easily draw some, drill some holes in them and stack two together so one drains, one catches. Yeah, and that that's like just a kind of homesteader go to. Yeah, it works really. really well. And then you, you know, if you live. In the north, you can use the winter as your time to cure because yeah. um, there's not a lot of flies, cool, even temperature. Um, but then you can also get yourself a spare curing fridge. And this is not a fridge that's like temperature and humidity controlled in any fancy fashion. Just a spare it's fridge. Sure. Yeah, yeah that's just chilled, you know, 35, 41, kind of going around in that zone, Fahrenheit. And that's where you... That's where you will salt the meat. Yeah. During that fragile initial stage, you want it to be in a fly-free environment. And that's what that fridge tends to be. For bacon, how long are you going to leave it in that cool environment before you can take it out and hang it up in your kitchen or your pantry? Yeah, the the recipe I like to follow is just five days. Yeah. That, that does it. That does enough. That, that yeah. pulls the moisture, pulls enough moisture out. That's right. That you can then take it out of that cool environment yeah. and put it into room temperature. Room temperature ambient temperatures in your house. So you can get by even your own fridge if you can clear it out a little bit. Yeah. If you get started, you know, and you have one pig and you want to do a few bellies, you could get by. Absolutely. You know, leave five days in the fridge, take it out, and then you can hang it. Yeah. Rinse it, dry it, and hang it. Let it let it cure. Yeah. And even the duration that it's in the fridge is, is very flexible. Really, it just needs to have sufficient quantity of salt pull out a sufficient amount of water. Yeah. Sometimes that can happen in 30 hours. Like it's done. You yeah. know, it's very quick. Um, so it's, if it's fine salt, it'll happen that much quicker than if it is coarse salt. It's mind blowing how simple this is. The first time we did it, I remember just 
stressing over, is there enough salt? Is there too much salt? Have we left it in the refrigerator long enough? Yeah. You know, should we flip it? Should we do this and that? And, and the more I learn, the more I realize just, you don't know, no, you just have to be confident yeah. in the simplicity yeah. of it and what you're saying and what you teach him. And, yeah. it, and it just works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What's, what's the best cut of meat to get started? I mean, is it, is it the pork belly? Is that the easiest part? I would have to, to say it's a pork belly. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the simplest because it's quick and it doesn't have lots of contours or tricky cavities. And it's, it's a quick turnaround. You pretty much within a week get the most delicious bacon you've ever tasted. Well, best thing to do is either raise your own pig or go buy one from a local farmer yeah. and, you know, maybe even have them cut it all up and have them save you a half of a belly or something. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're jittery, you're like, wow, that sounds cool, but I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and, and, and just get started and try it out. Yeah. And even if it's frozen, you know, even yeah. if you get your half pig back and you, that half belly winds up in the freezer because bacon is not preserved through fermentation. We don't need there to be bacteria on the meat. So, which would kind of be taken out by the freezer, you know, if yeah. it's in there long enough. It's just drying. So you can actually thaw out that belly and cure it. And it'll work. Right so, how do people learn more? How do they tell, tell, them, tell them about what you do? Yeah. And how they can learn more. You know, I know for us, even we try a lot of things. And we had heard all this. And I needed to come to you uh, six, seven years ago to find out more, to get some confidence. So, yeah. so you know, how, how can, what do you do and how can you help everybody out? Yeah, I think that the, the most direct way is to go to farmsteadmeatsmith.com and you can look at our upcoming classes because we teach this in person here in the middle of the country in Oklahoma. And we go through the whole process. Yeah. And you can, you can actually fit the whole narrative in your brain. It's, it's not complex. And uh, we teach curing very, cool. very simply. And then you can also look at, uh, we, have the on, we have an online option. We have the Meatsmith membership. And you can sign up annually or monthly. And it's got an archive of over 50 videos, including how to cure meat, but also how to harvest everything, you know, all livestock and butcher it and cure it and cook it on a domestic scale, on a small scale. Very, very cool. Brandon, thanks for thanks for having me this week. Yeah. It's been fun to hang out with you and thanks for coming on here. And and you guys go out, like we tell you about anything, go out and get started. Find find a path and just go try something. Go get a belly and get going on this. Cause you're even the guys we had here it was amazing to see yeah. some of these guys that were with us tasting this bacon for the first time. And I, I feel bad for them. I don't think they're gonna be able to go back to the grocery store. I could. No, yeah, no. It's been, it's been ten years. years. Yeah. Been good hanging with y'all, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pantry Chat, Food for Thought. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. To view the show notes and any other resources mentioned on this episode, you can learn more at homesteadingfamily.com slash podcast. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.